We're still in our series in Exodus today, so we're going to keep moving forward. And today's message is all about following God. Following God. This is hard. This is not easy. But this is what ultimately leads to life and life everlasting. So, like any good sermon from a pastor with young kids, I'm going to start with the story of my son, Owen. Owen, two and a half years old. If you see him running around, you'll think he's six or seven. He's only two. Giant rib cage to this kid. I was holding him the other day, just like his dad. And uh, Owen has an older brother, Grayson, who's just about to turn six. Can you believe it? That's how you can always remember how old Sedaris is, because Grayson was born just months after Sedaris was born. So Grayson's about to turn six. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary as a church. And so we got a two and a half year old and a six year old. And if you know anything about kids, here's what happens Owen is at the stage where he literally does everything that Grayson does, he just follows him around like a little shadow. Uh, and he'll do anything Grayson does. Like the other day, they, they ride their, they got their bikes, they ride them around the house, uh, just in circles on the grass. And uh, they were riding around. I did something Grayson didn't like, and so Grayson came up at me, and he got so angry, he took his bike, and he threw it against the fence. Well, guess what old little brother did? Kid comes up, he looks at dad, ah, takes his bike, throws it against the fence. Grayson's having a tantrum, he's on the ground, he's rolling around on the ground. Owen literally comes, and not only just rolls in the ground, but he like spoons up into where Grayson's rolling, so they're spooning on the grass, riling around, and Owen thinks it's great, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. He literally does everything. He mimics Grayson. Well, this is actually a picture of what God wants us to do. God came into the world in the flesh, in King Jesus, and he said, this is what it means to be human. Jesus gives us an example of what it means to be truly human as God designed it to be, and God wants us to spoon with Jesus, to be exactly like him. But this is incredibly hard. And it's always been hard to follow Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to follow God when he is, as we'll see today, in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, walking the Israelites out of captivity and slavery and oppression into the desert. It's hard to follow God, and we'll see why today. One of the reasons we'll talk about of why following God is so difficult is that our expectations of what God is doing are always wrong. Like, always wrong, at least in the short term. So you have an expectation of something in your life that you think, if I follow God, he surely wants to give me that thing, because it's a good thing, it's a right thing. The chances are your expectations are wrong. It's not going to play out like you think it should. And this gets tiring again and again and again when we have these expectations of what following God will lead to, and they don't, they don't pan out. So I'm going to be wrestling in my head. I'm going to be saying, is it really worth following God? Should I really follow him? Or should I just follow him in this area but not in these other areas because I think I can do these better? And God says, no, I want it all. I want a spoon. I want you to be so close to me and near to me that when I move left, you move left. When I go right, you go right. But that's incredibly hard because our expectations of God are always wrong. I'll show you that today. Back to Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came in on a donkey, what did I say? The people's expectations of what came next were way off. Everyone for 500 years had been waiting. God had almost been silent. There had been no prophets. We have this big gap in our Bible between the Old and the New Testament. Was God still speaking? And Jesus shows up and he performs miracles and he walks on water and he, he heals the sick and the lame walk, the blind see. People are literally raised from the dead. This must be the Messiah. And he comes in on a donkey. And, and they said that's what they predicted and he comes in. He's going to kick out the Romans, the oppressing force, just like the Egyptians had oppressed the people of God. For 430 years, the Romans now 
had oppressed the people of God. And now the Messiah is coming. King Jesus is coming. He's going to take them and move them out so that once again, the promised land can be the promised kingdom. That's what we were expecting as we waved our palm branches. And not a week later, Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. It seems like the wrong guys won. Nobody would have expected that. That's not why they were following Jesus. We'll see today, too, that even as God has delivered the people, remember last week? Last week was heavy, was it not? Heavy. We saw that God loves us so much that he's willing to kill for us even his own son. But that's just one of two commingled things that God is doing. And the other thing that he's doing, we'll see today. And until we understand that God's doing both things simultaneously and that they're actually intertwined, that they're not contradictory, but they are paradoxical, until we see that God is always doing two things, that his plan is always working two things out, only then will we be able to follow him freely. So we've got to understand today. We've already seen that he loves us so much he's willing to kill to free his people from oppression, bondage, slavery. But that's not all he cares about. There's something else that we must understand. We'll see that today. And when we see it, now perhaps we can begin to follow God, not just begrudgingly or always being disappointed with him, but actually joyfully follow him. When we get to the end of the passage today, you're going to be saying in your head, why, why, why God? I mean, they've been through so much. It's been 430 years that they've been under the rule of someone else. Why, God, are you going to bring them to this place? You might even get a little upset at God. That's okay. Because he's going to teach you why he leads the way he leads. Okay? So let's pray. Ask God to open our eyes to this really exciting text. The text of freedom, but to see it as God wants us to see it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, come now, send your spirit to descend upon this place and to fill this room, to fill our hearts and our minds, open our eyes, open our ears that we may hear from you this morning by the reading of your word. Sanctify us by your word, God. Your word is truth, eternal never-changing truth. Sanctify us by your truth. We need you now. Anything that is not of you, may it go in one ear and out the other, but if it is from you, may it sit and stir and change us into the image of your son Jesus so that we might be like him in every way. Though we fail and fall short, may we try again, turn back to following him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Are you ready? If you've got a Bible, open to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We'll have this scripture on the screen as well. If you don't have your Bible, you could also look it up on your phone. Exodus chapter 12. Let's see. Where did I put my glasses? I've lost my glasses. That's okay. So I'm just going to get the Bible really close. This is the best way to read your Bible, very closely, okay? <laughs> so we're going to read very closely. Okay. Now, look with me. We're actually going to start where we left off last week. And if, if you weren't here, didn't hear the sermon last week, I'm going to read this, and you're going to be like, what? So you need to do this. Press pause. Don't think about it 
too much, you need to go back and listen to last week because this is some heavy stuff. And then I'm going to just flow straight into our text for today, just so you can see the flow of how Moses wrote the narrative of these true events, okay? So here we go. Chapter 12, starting in verse 29, says this. Remember, there's been nine plagues, and then here comes the tenth plague. God is using the plagues to show his power and to free his people. At midnight, the Lord, that is Yahweh, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he, that's Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said to them, Up, go, out, go out from among my people, get out of here, flee, go. The thing that Moses had been asking for time and time again, even as Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let them go. So finally Pharaoh says, Go. Both you and the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord, serve Yahweh, worship Yahweh like you've asked. Just as you said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. So now he recognizes who has power in this world. It's not him like he thought. It's actually the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. Into verse 33. So the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land. In haste they sent them out. For they said, this is all the Egyptian people, for they said, we shall all be dead if they don't leave. So the people took their dough, that's the Hebrews, the Israelites, took their dough before it was leavened. They took their kneading bowls being uh, bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders the people of Israel had also gone, uh, done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that, they, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Okay, let me pause here. I mean, this is happening fast. So probably what has happened is uh, that Pharaoh has either sent some sort of a messenger to where the large population of the Hebrew slaves lived, which is in a region of Egypt called Goshen. And on the very night, the same night of the Passover, the night when, as we talked about last week, the Israelites put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost so the the Lord knew that they had, had a substitute in the place of their firstborn, whereas the Egyptians did not. When that happened and Pharaoh's own firstborn died, and all of Egypt experienced this great painful loss, um, Pharaoh sends a messenger, says, go, leave, you're completely free. All the stipulations you wanted, all the things that I said, yeah, you can go, but you have to leave your livestock. Yeah, you can go, but only the men. He says, everybody, go, get out, be gone. And all the Egyptians said, go, be out, be gone. And as they were going, God had actually told the Israelites, hey, as you're going, ask them for gold and silver. And they're they're probably like, whoa, these are people that have enslaved us. You want us to ask them for gold and silver as we're leaving? But God gave them favor in their eyes. And the people were so wanting them to leave because they saw that God was against them when they continued to oppress uh, the Hebrews that they gave them gold and silver. So why is that important? Well, it's not just that God has asked these people to trust him and leave everything that they've known, as we'll see in the next verse, for 430 years. This is like 15 or 16 generations. All they've ever known is living in Egypt. So this is a big ask to just trust God, throw your pots and pans over your shoulder, grab your uh, unleavened bread because it didn't have time to rise, wrap it up in your clothing, pack up all your things, get all your livestock, and just go into the desert. That's a big ask. God says, I'm going to actually give you a helping hand. The people are actually going to urge you to go. (laughs) They're going to, like, give you gold and silver to say, get out of here. 
Why is that important? God's going to do this. God is going to give you nudges in his mercy and grace to help you walk the path he wants you to walk. And sometimes it's going to be confusing to you. You're going to be thinking to yourself, like, if God is for me, like, why are these people so wanting me to leave? That doesn't feel like favor. They hate, they think we're a curse, they want us to get out. Yeah, that's sometimes how God's going to move. I mean, you might get accused of being a bad employee, and you're like, I didn't do anything, I'm getting blamed for something. And, and maybe one day you'll look back on that, and that was God's providential hand moving you out of something he no longer wanted you to be in so that he could move you into something else. So don't be too quick to judge why strange things are happening. I mean, these people are giving them a holy nudge to get them out of Israel because for some of them, these, these Israelites, it's sort of been a hard thing to just go. I mean, yeah, we've seen these plagues. We get that God is powerful, but we're not talking to him in the same way Moses is. And you want me to just leave everything that I've known, the houses that, I, that, that we've built? You just want me to leave it all? God says, yeah, follow me. And he uses the Egyptians, actually, to not only bless them, but to nudge them and help them go. Now, we don't know how many didn't leave. My guess is that some Israelites chose to stay. But many left. And God used even even the remaining Egyptians, their pain and their grief to help nudge them along and gave them gold and silver along the way. The gold and silver would have been used by the Israelites now once they're out in the desert to barter and trade with uh, all the other sort of nomadic people that were living in the wilderness and the desert. Then, as we'll see, we get to the end of Exodus. They'll use and gather up a lot of that gold and silver that they collected here and use that to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all the things needed to worship God, which is why God is moving them out of slavery into the worship of him in, in the wilderness. So all these things play together. So God helps. I mean, so just pause real quick. 15 or 16 generations, 430 years of living in the same place. Now, this is hard for us to comprehend. Do you know how old America is? At least the America that we know. It is younger than 430 years. The, you know when the pilgrims came? They're like the second major settlement. Do you know when the pilgrims came over to America? Nobody knows. That's okay. 1620. 1620. Do you know what year we just celebrated? 2020. You should never forget 2020. There's so many reasons to remember it. You gotta have great vision, things like that. Okay, so, tw- so that's 400 years. The math is easy. 400 years since the pilgrims came. Well, if you know the story, as uh, Claire Jenkins so perfectly read to us on our intro sermon in Exodus, um, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob who God changed his name to Israel, the 12 sons of Israel came to Egypt looking for food, sojourning, pilgriming to Egypt with just 70 in their group. 430 years before this exodus happened. So a lot changes, right? You become a people in a land, and so to leave it, Right? We've got to understand, this is a big deal to follow God out of everything you've ever known. Most of you guys don't even think of yourselves as pilgrims anymore. It, Israel wouldn't have thought of themselves as pilgrims. They'd never known it. Fifteen generations, all they've ever known is the land of Egypt. So it's a big deal. This is a big deal. So let's see what the Word of God says next. Verse 40 says this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. All the hosts. This is actually a word for divisions. This is actually a military term. This is important in understanding this. This was an organized exodus, meaning... They organized around the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember I said 12 brothers came to Egypt. 
and they were brought there, and the story of Joseph, and we'll see how that's important in a second. Um, Joseph had found favor in Pharaoh's eyes, even after his brother had tried to, brothers had tried to get rid of him, because he had a cool coat, and, and, and God had used all that, but now there's 12 tribes, and so they're organized as sort of military divisions marching out of Egypt. And so there's a lot of military language in here that's important to understand. This was not just a a wild fleeing and running in every which direction. God had already given Moses and Aaron um, organizational gifts to organize the people according to their tribes and then according to their clans and according to their families. And we'll see that play out because they're now a army of people moving out and they're eventually going to take back the land God promised to them. We're going to see it's going to take them a while to get there, but they're moving out. So hosts means divisions. And they went out of Egypt. Verse 42, it was, it was a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord watched over them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is the night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. So again, like we talked about last week, there's all this interspersing of this is what happened and then this is why we have these special holy days and, and festivals and feasts. And he's talking about why every night we, or every year we remember the vigil to the Lord because he watched over us so we remember him and we have a special night of, of watching and giving to the Lord. A little bit like what we'll have on Friday, on Good Friday. We remember like a vigil to the death of Jesus where we silence our souls, we come and we remember what he's done. So I really encourage you to come. It's going to be a late service, Good Friday, this Friday. It's going to start at 9 o'clock, and that's because uh, we told the Vietnamese uh, Christian community church that meets here right after us on Sundays, we said, you guys can have a, the pick of time you want on Good Friday, and we'll just work around. So they picked a particular time, <laughs> so we had to wait till they're done. So we're doing it nice and late because we're young and healthy and fresh. So we will come at 9, and it'll be nice and dark and solemn, and we'll remember a vigil to our King and Savior hanging across. Ryan has got an amazing uh, sermon planned for us. Actually, we're going to skip much of chapter 13, and Ryan's going to pick that up and show you again that connection that we talked about last week between the Passover and the death of our Lamb, Jesus. So, mark that. Come. It's going to be a great night. Okay. So, 430 years... And they're marching out of Egypt following God. Now, one of the really interesting things, did I skip over that? I skipped over a chunk of text. I skipped over. Why didn't anybody tell me? Verse 37 to 39, I skipped over that. I'm going to go back and read that now because this is important. Verse 37 says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes as of dough and they had, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor could they prepare any provisions for themselves. So, um, two notes here. The 600,000 men, there's a lot of debate about that number. So I'm just going to present it to you I read a lot about that this week, and there's some really good uh, textual evidence, meaning when you study uh, the Hebrew words that the Torah was written in, this word for thousand can be translated a lot of different ways. It's the word elef, can be translated thousand, it can also be translated cattle, can be translated clan, division, family, tribe, and then the word that's attached to it that says here men Actually, a better translation is actually uh, fighting youth, fighting youth. So that would be any man between the ages of 20 and 50. So um, one of the commentaries I read this week that was very persuasive, I'm just going to, I don't know, it could have been 600,000 men, which would have put the total population around 2 million, which feels like a lot, okay, <laughs> feels like a lot, which is why you're like, there's 2 million, that seems like a lot, especially in that time in the world. Um, so I read something today, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I read something today that said if, if you translate it more literally, 600 young fighting men, 
between 20 and 50, and the word for Eliph is actually like a, again, like this military division, the number, military division being kind of like a platoon of like 12 to 15 in a fighting unit. If there's 600 fighting units, 600 platoons, that would put the total number more around, if you, if you, if you just do the math and the number of men over 50 and under 20 and then wives and children, all that stuff, the number gets closer to like 36,000, which seems a lot more reasonable for everything that's about to happen next. I'm just saying, just putting it out there, but many of the translations say 600,000. It could be both ways. Just saying it's not clear to scholars, and these are people that, like we do, trust every word of the Bible is written, but understanding exactly what's being said here can sometimes get lost in the translation from the Hebrew to the English. So, it could have been like a couple million, or it could have been like 36,000. You decide in your mind what you uh, envision. There's a lot of people either way. There's a lot of people either way fleeing out of Egypt, okay? So, and the second thing that you need to look at in that verse is, in that passage is verse 36. It says there was a mixed multitude this is really important and really great. What, what does this mean? It means it was an ethnically diverse group. So not everybody that fled with Israel or that became Israel was of the exact same genetic makeup as the Israelite people. Meaning, genealogically, they didn't descend from Abraham. But they were grafted in starting at the Exodus. Meaning what? that they saw the mighty acts of God, Yahweh, and they came to believe that he was the one true God, and then they went with God's people, and they were grafted in. And we don't have time to get into it, but in, 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 in the instructions for the Passover that Ryan will talk about on Friday, the institution for the Passover, you'll see all these rules for people that aren't of Israelite blood but are part of the Israelite family and how they are to become part of the family through circumcision so that they might participate in the Passover and receive the benefits of the lamb slain for them. It's really beautiful that even at the very beginning, even though God's chosen a particular ethnic people, he's always had other people attaching to them, becoming a part of their worshiping family and experiencing the blessings that he promised to Abraham. So this is really, really cool. And they're all united. So how, how do ethnic groups unite? How do they become one family? And this is a question we're asking these days. How can we be united? Here's the answer. Through the worship of Yahweh. They did it 5,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. How, how, how has it changed? It hasn't. Ethnic groups can become united even to the point of seeing each other as family when they unite in worship of the one true God. Now, th- this is so amazing that the prophet of Israel, Moses, who we're studying about and learning about, it seems to be, as we read on, that his first wife, Zipporah, who herself was not an Israelite but a Midianite, and she was grafted into the family, she dies, and then Moses remarries, and he marries a Cushite woman. You know who the Cushites are? The Ethiopians. Just south in, in, in the Horn of Africa. An interracial marriage united into one family through the worship of Yahweh, the prophet of Israel. I mean, it's beautiful. We have the blueprint. That doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, that we'll see that some people didn't like that Moses had married a Cushite woman. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's God's way to unite all the nations under one banner, into one family, for all of time, through the worship of his son Jesus. We see it right here. A mixed multitude walked out of slavery and into freedom so that they might worship and serve Yahweh. It's beautiful. Okay, so we're skipping over now most of chapter 13 and go with 
me to verse 17 in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 17, and we'll pick up the story. Again, Ryan will come back and explain everything in between on Friday. It's going to be a really good time of teaching. Don't miss that. Okay, so verse 17 says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead, or, sorry, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and then return to Egypt, I'm going to send them a different way. Verse 19, or verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Okay? So, if you, if you had a map, what you'd see is there's a really quick way to get from Egypt back to Canaan, the promised land, where now modern-day Israel is. And it's the northern route right along the Mediterranean, and there's a well-worn path, and you could just walk right through it, but then you'd encounter the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? We'll see them again. You might have heard of Goliath. He was a Philistine warrior, They're a mighty force. And the point here is God's not, God's not saying, well, they won't be able to defeat them because God's got no problem with any army. We see God will fight for his people. That's not the reason that he sends them another way because God could, if he wanted to, destroy the Philistines just like he did the Egyptians. The Philistines were not stronger than the Egyptians. But God, in his infinite wisdom, turns them towards the long way the long way, and they head down south towards the Red Sea. And he does this. We don't know all the reasons of God, but at least one seems to be he realizes even though he could wipe out the Philistines, when the people simply saw the Philistines and realized they had not yet been trained and organized as a fighting force, some would just say, war's not for me. I'll go back to Egypt and be a slave. I don't want war. I don't even want to wait to see what God will do to the Philistines. I'm just going back. I didn't sign up for this. So God understands the fickleness of many of our hearts. And so he leads us on another way. Not because he couldn't do it, because he knows what's best is actually for them to prepare themselves for what we will see is military conflict. <clears throat> so God's after something more. He's after them learning to follow him and trust him. And it's too soon to put them to the test. They've got to learn this through some more examples of why God is worthy to be trusted. So look at the rest of verse 18. It says this, And so the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle on the southern route. Again, military language, you see. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Okay, this really strange insertion of Joseph, and you're like, who's Joseph? You gotta read Genesis to understand who Joseph is. Remember, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name became Israel, and he was the first in Egypt, and he was actually one that saved all of his other brothers and saved the whole... Um, ethnic group of the Jews because God used him mightily in the land of Egypt to save Egypt and his people. Well, at the end of Joseph's life, he says, when God, final, when God fulfills his promise to give you back the land, I want you to take my bones with you. Now, how many of you think that Joseph thought it would take 430 years for God to fulfill his promise? So Moses is reminding us, we have no idea the plans or timeline of God. But Joseph believed, and look, another word of God fulfilled. Joseph's bones are taken with them and eventually will be taken into the promised land. So just an important note there that says, even when it seems like, where is God? Why is he waiting so long? It's been 2,000 years. He said he's coming back. This isn't the first time people had to wait much longer. Than they, than they might have imagined. Joseph was probably thinking, probably in like 10 or 15 years, they'll take my bones up, 430. And it's going to take them another 40 to get there. But you follow God, knowing that you have no idea what to expect, except that God is with you. So, let's keep going. 
So, verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So they're getting very close to the desert proper. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay. More strangeness happening, but not that different. There seems to be some supernatural creation of a cloud that, that leads the way and that the people can follow. So it's not just somebody saying, well, I think God wants us to go this way. It's very obvious. There's a giant cloud by day, a pillar of cloud leading the way, and by night, it's not like we can't see the cloud because the cloud becomes like fire. I don't know how this works. I don't know how to get one of these. Can't just order one of these on Amazon. It would be nice that if we could just follow Jesus in the same way. But actually, we can. Let me show you something. Jump down to chapter 14, if you've got your Bible. In verse 19, it says this. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So we'll get to this next week, Easter Sunday. We get to talk about the Red Sea. And the pillar moves. And and the pillar is described as what? The angel of God. And if you're tracking with us, where else was this phrase, the angel of God? In the burning bush. When Moses was first given the command to free God's people. Same phrase. And what did Ryan say in that sermon? But there's a very good chance. This is not just an angel as we like to think of angel, but, but the word messenger here. And the messenger is always distinguished not from some third party, but as Yahweh God himself, both in the burning bush, which is why we say Moses spoke to God, and here that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of smoke is actually a manifestation of God himself. Scholars call this a Christophany, meaning a pre-Jesus manifestation of God the Son in the world. It seems to be, we, we serve a triune God, one God that exists eternally in three persons, three in one, hard concept, but that the Son seems to be when God acts and manifests in the physical world. Here's an example. So who are they following in the wilderness? Christ, the angel of God. The Word became flesh, John says. Here, the Word becomes a pillar of cloud and, and, smoke, and uh, fire. Follow me, Jesus says. I'll lead you to life. Pretty fascinating. Pretty amazing. Now, of course, Israel didn't know all this. They didn't know about Jesus coming. They didn't know about Palm Sunday. They didn't know about Good Friday. They didn't know about Easter Sunday. But they did know that God shows up for them. And they see it in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night so that they can keep moving at a pace greater than the Pharaoh army who we'll see is actually pursuing them, even though Pharaoh said, I'll let you go. Fascinating. So now, a couple things about this pillar that I I just want to point you to. Remember, it says God is now with us. They're not just shooting in the dark anymore. He's with them. He's leading them. So they are now free from slavery, just as we are free from the slavery of sin and death and the devil through the cross of Christ, but they still have the complexities of following God. It's it's more clear now because we've got a pillar of cloud and fire. But you're not truly free. I mean, you are, because you, you know, the pillar could go that way, and you could be like, I'm gonna go that way, 
Maybe some did that. I, I think it's probably fair to say some did that because some still do that to this day. Jesus goes one way, and we see some disciples go the other way. But now it becomes clear. You're, no long, you're, not, you're not free to just do whatever you want, meaning you can't just fly if you choose you want to fly. So you're, you're only free in some ways. And if you choose to follow God, you're not truly free. You're free from Egypt and Pharaoh, but you're not free from Christ because he's in a pillar, and he's going that way, and you have to choose, are you going to follow him? So freedom in Christ is complex, and it means that you are let go from the old way and the old things that draw you in or require you to give over your agency to them. You're free from that. You no longer have to pay the piper to get the blessings of whatever that thing are. You're free. Christ has bought you and redeemed you, but as we've said before, you're not free from Christ you're now free to serve Christ and to follow the pillar in the wilderness. So freedom in Christ is actually not like true freedom to do whatever I want. It's freedom to be with God again. And the pillar represents his presence. No longer do you have to follow the ways and the systems of the world. But now you can be in the presence of Christ. That's what it means to follow. Another way you could say this is that it's actually freedom from expectation. Why do I say it like that? When you understand what freedom in Christ is, you realize it's freedom from expectation. Because what did I tell you? To try to expect God to do something is a fool's errand. You don't know what he's going to do. So if you truly say, I'm trusting and following you, God, you're now free from the mental gymnastics of expecting what's coming next. I have no idea what's coming next for Sedaris Church. I just plan to show up if God tells me to show up. If all y'all stop showing up, I'll probably do it for a few more months just to see (laughs) Uh, you sure, God? Is it over? Okay, no, it's not over. Keep going. So we're going. I have no expectations. I don't know. Now, it's a struggle to get there, but freedom in Christ means you're free from expectation because he's like, don't expect. Just trust and follow. That's freedom in Christ. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We'll see that. That's all we're asking. God, God's going to give us our bread. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. God gives us that. Our bread and forgiveness, we can expect those two things. But everything else, we pray, your will be done. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen? That's all you need to expect. You're free from expectation. So whatever he gives you, It's all good, which is why marriage becomes the very best example of what relationship and following God is like. Because what do you pray at your wedding? Or what do you promise to each other? What do we promise? (laughs) For better, for worse? I had unique vows at my wedding. For better, for worse? In sickness and in health? Richer for poorer? Right? Right? It's the same thing we say. I'm not going to expect anything from you, God. I'm just going to follow you. Sickness and health, I'm going to follow you. Richer for poor, I'm going to follow you. Better or worse, I'm going to follow you. That's what following God means. You're free from expectation because you have his presence with you even in the wilderness. A pillar of cloud by day. Give you some shade. Give you direction. Fire by night to keep you moving. Keep you safe. It's beautiful. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Look at the beginning of chapter 14. And remember, in the original writing when Moses wrote this, he didn't put chapter headings or chapter titles. So the very next thing says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Wait, what? I thought we were going towards freedom. Nope. Turn back and encamp in front of of Pihathrioth. Between Midgal 
and the sea, and in front of Baal, Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and he will pursue you. Here's what's happening. God is telling them to turn around and entrap themselves between the cliffs where Pharaoh's coming and the Red Sea. Oh, uh, what? I thought freedom was what you said, and you want us to turn back? You want to purpose us to purposefully entrap ourselves with nowhere to go? God says, yep. That's where the pillar of cloud's going. You're going to follow it? That's where the pillar of fire's going. That's where God's going. Are you going to follow God? What? So it said at the beginning, why would, why would he do that? I thought he was for our freedom. Yes, and something else. What is it for? Look at the very next word. And, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, all his divisions, all his armies, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What? thought you'd already proved yourself. God says, there's more glory to be had. And in the moment, you can't see why this would be good for you. Looking back on it, we can say, oh my gosh, they probably never would have stopped chasing the Israelites if the Red Sea had never happened. You think that? In the moment, it seems crazy. But God sees things like we don't. And God says, I'm going to entrap you, and as we'll see next week, I'm going to open a way for you through the sea, through death itself, into resurrection on the other side for my glory. So back to the two things that God's always doing simultaneously. One, he is willing to kill for your freedom so that you can be in relationship with him again. That's how much he loves you. He put his own son to death for you, but he's also in it for his own glory and that might seem selfish or narcissistic. It's not because it's God and his glory is your good. When he is seen for what he truly is and all knees bow and worship him, that's for your good. When you bow your knee to God and you say, God, your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom. Your will be done, not my will. That is for your good. And so he has to reveal his glory to the world so that things can be put back right and you can thrive again. So his glory is your good, and he's doing both simultaneously. He's freeing them, and then he's entrapping them, and it seems like he's manic, and he's double-minded, and he's not. It's all working for your good and his glory. And he puts them right in front of the Red Sea, and an army, the greatest army that the world knew at the time, right behind them, and there's no way out, and God put them there on purpose. That's where the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire stopped, so that God could glorify himself so that we might trust him more and follow him longer and deeper and closer than we otherwise would if we didn't see him for who he truly was. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's not what you think it's going to be. Your expectations are wrong. You never would have hung Jesus on the cross. But now you look back and you said, I needed a substitute a lamb. I needed to know that resurrection is true, that there's life beyond the grave so that I can worship God more than I worship medicine. Only God can bring people back to life. And so we worship God. Two things to take away from you this morning. Say, how do I live this out? How, how do I, if my desire is to follow God, to follow Christ Jesus better, how do I do it? The first thing is to remember what we just talked about. To accept that God is doing two things at once. They are not contradictory. They are paradoxical. And we can't fully understand it. And so we trust God. And when we humble ourselves and accept that he is working for the best possible outcome. And we just become okay with this intertwined purposes of God. It allows us the freedom to follow. And follow happily. Even when it hurts. Even when it confuses. Even when it confounds. Because we realize 
that his presence, his nearness, his with us is the best possible thing in this life. It's enough if we just have him so that no matter what comes our way or what he puts in our path or where he directs us, we will follow his voice just like the Egyptians. Look at the, very, the last little phrase I didn't read at the very end of verse 4, chapter 14. It says, and they did so. The cloud turned and they followed. Will you turn and follow? Even when it seems like he's taking you away from blessing into rough waters. The second thing. Notice what doesn't happen ever in this passage. It almost seems like Moses is a different person. Right? I mean, you remember when he was at the burning bush the first time the angel of the Lord showed up? The first time there was fire and weird smoke and somebody speaking? He made every excuse possible. Nine times he tried to get out of it. You never hear that here. Seems like he just kept following the fire. What's that tell us? Change does happen, but it happens over time. Moses learns to hear and recognize the voice of God and to follow it better. Now, as we'll see as we go on, he doesn't always. He still falls short and struggles and stumbles. But as we sung earlier, what did we sing? I'm learning to listen, to rest in your presence. That change does happen. You learn to hear God's voice. You learn to trust it. Each and every time you step towards him and follow his ways, and even when you follow him into hardship, into fear, you learn to listen better and to follow. And over time, you realize you're not the same person. Moses has changed. You will change. And following will get easier. Trust me, it's happened for me. I used to fight God at every turn. I don't fight as much anymore. It's okay to fight, but over time you'll change because you'll learn following him does lead to life. So what did Jesus tell his disciples? Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, unless you change, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why do you want to learn to listen? Why do you want to learn to follow? So that you might enter the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom, which he's building on earth as it is in heaven. And what do you need to become like? Owen. Blindlessly following your Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, wherever he takes you.